Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and joining me today is Marshall Eubanks. Marshall is the Chief Scientist at Space Initiatives Incorporated. He's a former member of NASA JPL, and he has a long history of startups and work in the commercial space sector. I also worked for the Naval Observatory. I have been in my career a radio scientist, a radio, very long baseline interferometry is one of my, I worked on that for a long time. I'm still working on it. Done earth rotation. I mean, if I could just say a few words, what we set up first at JPL and then at the USNO, the US Naval Observatory, was the foundation of the current navigation system. And also the infrastructure needed to, as I call it, navigate the GPS satellites. So if you use GPS, if you if you have a cell phone and you know look up a pizza place or something you're going to go to, ultimately that's tied back to very long baseline interferometry observations of quasars. Right. And I'm proud to say I helped set that up. Uh, Absolutely. And so- when I say tied to, I mean like literally today. Almost yeah. certainly right now, there are observations going on to sort of calibrate this whole system and keep this going. This is a continual thing. It's not just somebody did it back in the past and it's done. No, it's like a continual thing. And one of the things I hope to do is to do the same thing for the moon. Yes. Which is a little different, but, you know, at a 30,000 foot level, more or less the same. Now, most recently, you were awarded a phase one development grant from NASA as part of the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program for your swarming Proxima Centauri mission concept. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, first, we are actually in contract negotiation on that. So until you have a contract, you know, but we expect to get that contract by next month. So then I feel like we've been properly awarded it. But uh, our idea, how can we send a mission in anything like you know our lifetimes, our kids' lifetimes, to a star. Stars are fantastically far away. Proxima Centauri is, you know, four trillion kilometers or something like that away. That's a long, long way. And it would take any of our spacecraft so far millennia to get to there, get there. Mm-hmm. So problem is the it takes energy to get velocity, and you also have to, if you have a rocket, you have to carry along a reaction mass, as they call it, that you shoot out the back to send you forward. And so you're you're using energy to carry reaction mass that you then lose, like with the Apollo missions. This the whole Saturn V was humongous 300 foot high rocket turned into a little thing that landed on the moon, a relatively little thing that landed on the moon. And where did the rest of that mass go? Well, there was both fuel and tanks for fuel and, you know, engines for the fuel. And 
So you're, it's really all about carrying fuel. And the trouble with going to stars is, well, it takes light four years to go to Proxima Centauri 4.24. And the rocket equation tells you that rocketry is convenient when you have a when you need a velocity that's comparable to the velocity of your exhaust. So kilometers per second, no problem. Ten kilometers per second, no real problem because you can get you can you know burn things, and the exhaust from that is in the kilometers per second level. So you know obviously it depends on whether you have hydrogen or methane or solid fuels or whatever you're burning, but that's what. That's how rocket work. Well, we would like to go at 60,000 kilometers a second to get to Proxima in 20 years. Why 20? Because that's a reasonable, you know, human lifetime thing. We don't want to take 200 years. It's That's a cathedral, not a space mission. Um, we want to take something like 20 years. 20 years means 60,000 kilometers a second, which means, by the way, over a thousand times better than anything we've done so far. And we have nuclear thermal rockets and we could maybe, with a big effort, make fusion rockets, but none of those things are, you know, the exhaust is hot enough, fast enough to solve this problem. Now, if we had lots of antimatter lying around, we could, you know, maybe do this with antimatter, but we don't. And we don't think antimatter is a realistic thing because you have to make it and you have to handle it. And mm -hmm. it's very, you know, it explodes if you touch it. So it's it's a hard thing. So the solution is laser beaming. You have the, the, the power sources on Earth, or maybe on the moon or in space. You have, a, you have a laser, you shine it on a laser sail, and people have gone through this, and what seems like is feasible is a 100-gigawatt laser, so a substantial fraction of the whole you know, energy, electrical production of the Earth, of, those, of the U.S., a 100-gigawatt laser um, that's pushing a few meter few square meter sail um i think the the current sail design is seven meters across um it's varied um that weighs only a few grams three or four grams and that's not if you think about a pizza a pizza weight i mean this pen weighs about 10 grams so we're taking talking about something like this that we turn into this big sheet that's 10 meters that's the size of the whole room i'm in here or bigger and then put instruments on that, put lasers on that, and all like that, and then send it to Proxima. That's a tough, that's tough engineering. And, but we think that that could work. We think we could do that. So this is like pushing the envelope in sort of all directions, you might say. But we think we could do this in maybe 10 or 20 years from now. So in 10 or 20 years from now, we could launch an expedition. And what would the, what would the cost of that be? Well, space cost tends to be connected to mass. You know, if you want to make it cheap, you've got to make it light, small. So the spacecraft themselves should be relatively cheap. Now, we, we, we're not able to calculate the cost. It might be tens of thousands of dollars even or something like that. It might be really cheap to launch one of these. The cost is going to be in the laser. The cost is going to be in the whole laser system, which is going to be this big, huge thing that's several football fields in size probably, that you're going to have to put like on a mountain or maybe on the moon or something and have a nuclear power plant or something powering it. All that's going to be really expensive. But once you build it, you can launch more. So this this idea is not new to us. A lot of people have had it. You don't launch one pie plate or pizza to, uh, to Alpha Centauri. Launch lots. Launch dozens or hundreds or even maybe a thousand. We think a thousand. There's a the Earth rotates around the sun. You can only do this at certain times of day, certain times of year. 
So maybe in one year you could have an expedition where you launch a thousand. That, that's mm-hmm. probably about the the reason yeah. limit there. But the total mass of those things would only be a few kilograms. The total cost of them would be fairly cheap. So the question then is, well, how do you get data back? If each one is autonomous, if you're just sending a thousand separate little mini spacecraft and they don't talk to each other and they don't share anything, your data return is going to be really limited. They were talking about, you know, maybe a few hundred kilobits of data back from from each probe. That's like a kind of thumbnail type picture. We want to do better. So we assemble these things into a fleet, a swarm. They talk to each other. And then they use all of their laser power, because each one has a laser to send back to Earth, all of their laser power together to send a coherent signal back to Earth and thus raise the bit rate considerably. Um, And so you, I mean, if you just think, well, if each one could do by itself 100 kilobytes and yet 1,000, well, that's 100 megabytes. That's a lot better. Our goal is to send back a data return that's comparable to New Horizons. New Horizons did a good job to describing the Pluto system when it flew by. It took a year to get the data back. And we would kind of we would like to get a comparable amount of data back in a comparable time, i.e., tens of gigabytes of data back in a year from the Proxima flyby. And we think with that we can do a lot, a lot of good science, take some cool pictures, get high resolution, and by high resolution, I mean kilometer scale or better of the Proxima story. Not all of Proxima B, that's the planet in the habitable zone, but pieces of it, images of it. And also, if there's anything like life there, we have a good chance of detecting it. And certainly if there's anything like a technological civilization like ours, I think we have an excellent chance of detecting it. And in fact, I remember reading your paper there about establishing communications. And yes, it's sending thousands of them, having them sort of boosting the signal. And of course, there's the attrition rate, right? Because... Not all well, yes. I mean, again, this is something that a lot of people have had. We don't know how dangerous it is out there. We don't know how many it will survive. Is it you know, 50%, 10%? We don't really know. We'll find out, of course, but we don't know. And so we're not, this, is the, this idea is not new to us, that if you send out a 1,000, you have a much better chance of having some of them get through than if mm-hmm. you send out one. Yes. And, well, I, I sincerely hope NASA does follow through and funds this to completion because... Between the swarming Proxima Centauri concept, breakthrough Starshot, right? It's like it would be good to have multiple efforts to send probes to nearby stars. And Well, we have been working with breakthrough Starshot. We had a contract with them. That, that work is now completed. The contract has been closed because it was a fixed time. But we have been working with them, and that has really, really helped us improve our work because it's good to get criticism. It's good to hear other, other people's ideas. The feedback has been very, very, very important to us. So I don't regard this as really separate from Breakthrough Starshot in a sort of scientific sense. It mm-hmm. is contractually. It's not the same proposal. It's a new proposal. BTS, is, Breakthrough Starshot, is not funding this at all. But we're on good terms with them, and we talked with them literally weekly because we have a weekly meeting set up, two weekly meetings, actually, that we attend. And, you know, so we'll see going forward. Absolutely, yes. This this would be very much a collaborative sort of thing where even if you're not working directly together, it's like you're both piggybacking off of each other's success. And Exactly. If somebody makes it, perfect. And one of the things that we feel very strongly is that this is a tool that will have utility all over the place in space. With 100 kilometers a second, we could get to Pluto in a year. We could get to almost anybody you might care to name that we know of in the solar system 
in a year or two. So you want to go to Sedna, you want to go to Eris, you want to go to Makimaki, or you want to go to something closer like Triton or the moons of Uranus, say. These little pie plates could go to all of those things very quickly. And they won't tell you everything. You'll still want to have bigger missions going on. But if you want to do an initial exploration, we could do that. If you want to like do an exploration of every dwarf planet, which is now dozens, I think, we could do that once we get the system developed. Same idea. Once you get it developed, the cost is in the hardware. Deploy these things and laser boost them. Once you get that, we can send these things cheaply, I think, everywhere. Yes. And that that's powerful. That'll be a, a national or international resource that I am sure will be used a lot. I mean, one of the things we're trying to talk to with the planetary defense at NASA is there's no reason we couldn't send a probe like this to every potentially hazardous asteroid. They're close by. Communication should be relatively easy. And, you know, it's just like if something's potentially hazardous, let's send a probe and see what, you know, what the rotation rate is, what it looks like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Rapid missions. And in fact, interstellar objects, that's another potential application yes. that you've, you've explored extensively, haven't you? If I was czar of this and I had a laser system and I could do 100 meters, 100 kilometers a second, I would for sure send something to one eye, Umwamwa, the first interstellar. And I would send something to two eye, too, Borisov, a comet Borisov, because why not? You know, these are both interesting objects. And for centuries to come, millennia to come, they will be closer than Proxima Centauri. So mm-hmm. as we develop the capability to get, I, I feel that's inevitable. As we develop the capability to get to, you know, interstellar distances, we will send probes to these objects. Um, even if we find more, even if we find, you know, if LSST or whatever finds lots more, we'll still send them to one eye and two eye. Because why not? You know, it's... Mm-hmm. And this is actually something that's frustrated me because, you know, as you may know, I'm sure you do know that certain astronomers and certain people have said, well, maybe one eye was an interstellar scout of some sort, or maybe a bit of interstellar trash uh, from extraterrestrial (laughs) intelligence. But if you really think that, if you're not just sort of blowing smoke, why would you want to go check it out? It would seem like that would be the thing you'd want to do. Now, that might not be worth a multi-billion dollar New Horizons type mission with a heavy probe and so on, but I think it would be worth a pie plate. Now, your particular proposal for doing that, for catching up with interstellar objects, that was Project Lyra? Yes, that was. So if you you don't mind, I'll tell you a little history here. I follow and I'm active on something called the Minor Planet Mailing List, MPML which is a mailing list for amateurs and professional astronomers who want to talk about asteroids, minor planets. And back in 2017, there was an email saying, this is weird object and it has a high eccentricity greater than one. Now, eccentricities can be misleading because if you don't have a lot of data on a new asteroid, if if you've just been observed like one or two nights, you can easily have a really cruddy orbit and the eccentricity can be greater than one. And eccentricity greater than one means it's unbound, means it's not from this solar system in theory. And so I thought, well, because this had an eccentricity of like, I think it was three or something. That's pretty high. And I thought, so I'll look into it. And it had a velocity at infinity. That is to say, the velocity would have, if you let it go all the way to infinity, of about 30 kilometers a second at the time. And I thought, Tens of kilometers a second? No, that seemed really strange. And so I was like, hey, this should be looked at, sort of beating the drum on this, you know. 
people should be observing this and it was already past perihelion so it's going out of the solar system and you know so one of the things we did was we looked at all the spacecraft that are out there pioneer voyager etc does it go near any of them well no unfortunately it doesn't so it's not like it's going to fly by close to mars or something an mro could take a picture of it you know no it's like it's on its own path going very much out of the ecliptic and even at that time even at that time if you if you had a a mission that was on a rocket that was ready to go that you could hijack and you could have done it at the time we first observed one eye i don't think you could have gotten to it i don't think even new horizons or any of those fast missions could have gotten to it been close for some of them but i don't think so but certainly by the time it's like clear that it's interstellar you know which was a few weeks no it's already out of it's going away so you're going to need to get to it and so that's i started doing orbits and i was like yeah to, to do this even with a sls because at the time there was no falcon heavy or starship it was sls to do this with an sls mm, you could maybe do it but you're gonna i mean for one thing you're not going to do it this year because the sls doesn't exist yet and you're going to have to do a solar overth maneuver which is where you go really close to the sun so you go really fast and then you burn your rockets there so you get you you, that's the easy that's the best way to gain energy is to do an overth maneuver go close to a massive body so you're going fast and then fire your rockets and then that means you got to get close to the sun and to do that in a reasonable time that means you got to get to jupiter and do a gravity assist so you you go out to jupiter do a gravity assist fall into the sun and then do this overth maneuver and then get out to where you need to go well right there that tells you that's multiple years right because you've got this two two years or so to get out to jupiter and then another two or three years to fall into the sun so that's five years or something like that and and jupiter is not always in the right place and you know and like and then i found out that this institute for interstellar studies group was working on the same thing i mean celestial mechanics of course the same so our orbits you know we're thinking about the same so it's like we should work together and we agreed to do that in like about a minute i think in our first conversation because we really were working on the same you know ideas and so we've been working together since then andreas hein and adam hibbert who's a really really good uh, celestial dynamicist and uh, robert kennedy and some other people and we've been working since then and and basically it's still the same idea with variation so maybe you don't go out by jupiter maybe you, you know but it's like you got to get this velocity you got to it's actually two velocities you got to get you got to get this high velocity to get to it but you also have to get out of the ecliptic plane and those are kind of two separate problems um and so it takes a little bit of finagling to solve them both and uh, but you can do it um and you can get to it and again so th at the time it was like well if we wanted to spend you know a heavy mission if we and this is a billion dollars or more i mean if you wanted to have an sls or even a starship yeah you could do this you could get to one eye it would take you a while you're talking about 2040 probably but you could do it but that's a billion dollars is it worth a billion dollars mm, that's a i don't know that's a decent question now i remember talking to jim green who at the time was the head of the nasa planetary sciences department this is in either 2017 or 2018 saying we should do this and he asked me a very simple question is it in the decadal survey and i said no I mean, Jim, so Jim Green said, get in the decadal survey and we can talk. And I'm like, geez. And the other thing is, like, you know, missions are booked, manifested. 
it's not like you can fly a Falcon Heavy or a SLS or something like that just overnight. It you got to get on the list of approved missions and you got to get in a manifest and that all that takes years. At the same time, I was doing some ephemeris work on one eye, and I realized we don't know where it is very well. It wasn't observed very long. And the sort of time scale we're talking about, i.e. getting there somewhere between 2040 and 2060, say, we're not going to know where it is to much better than 100,000 kilometers, a lunar distance, you know, a light second, something like that. Um, And it's out there in the dark. It's a small object. It's very far from the sun. It will be very dim unless you're close to it. And so I don't think a single mission could actually get to one eye. It might be able to find it, but it would do a flyby at 100,000 kilometers, like it was you know, going by the moon or something. So it would not get a good picture of it. It might get a few pixels, but it would. And this is a heavy mission. So you're going to spend a billion dollars and you're going to get like one pixel out of it? Mm-hmm. That seems not likely to fly, literally. And so we started thinking, well, how would you find it? Well, make a whole bunch of little subprobes and then send them in advance and then have them go by this 100,000 kilometer wide window where it might be to find out where it is exactly. But now if you think about it, that's already close to what Breakthrough Starshot was planning on doing. So this is really where the two things kind of got together. Well, it's like, well, okay, if we're going to do that, we'll need to talk between the probes and gee, that sounds like a swarm, and they got to talk back to Earth. And that's really where all this came from, was considering how could you get to one eye and how could you find it before you got there. All the probes have to do is say, it's here in this 1,000-kilometer box, say. Divide it up into 1,000-kilometer boxes, put one probe in each one, and, and the one is says, hey, it's in this one. And then you could send a heavy mission or subsequent light sail mission that's really targeted on it. It's not just flying by at 100,000 kilometer distance, but it's like flying by at 100 kilometer distance or, or less. So you get really good pictures and you can find out what it really is and so on. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Initiative for Interstellar Studies because, in fact, looking back a ways just to the whole genesis of all this the laser sails and interstellar missions, my understanding is that this sort of began with Project Dragonfly, which was yeah. the, the initiative for interstellar studies. That was their design study, their design competition. From there, that's where we got the ideas that went into Breakthrough Starshot, yourself and, and your colleagues with Project Lyra. It was interesting. It's sort of like the threads went back to this point and then they kind of diverged. And Lyra is something that, as you said, that that's, that's something you were doing with the initiative for interstellar studies or i4is so would it be fair to say that after that sort of branching out of ideas they're sort of coming back together now where the concepts for going interstellar rendezvousing with interstellar objects and exploring neighboring exoplanets that there's kind of been a convergence yes i mean i think there has been i mean another another thing that we've been working on together is nomadic planets Oh, yes. That, that is to say, planets that are not connected to any star. Now, if you believe that there's about as many nomadic planets as there are stars, or there are more nomadic planets than there are stars, which is what the data we have indicates, then there should be some closer than the nearest stars. So somewhere out there in the outer Oort cloud, or maybe in the inner Oort cloud, I don't know, you know, we don't know, but somewhere between... And if you actually run through the numbers 
if you want a a Jupiter-sized body, you're talking, and, and this is very roughly, but we don't really know, so rough is good. Uh, you're talking about maybe one a light year away. So it's closer than Proxima Centauri, but comparable. You're talking about Earth-sized bodies or, you know, super-Earth, sub-Neptunes. You're talking about maybe a tenth of a light year. And if you're talking about Ceres-type bodies or lunar-type bodies, probably even closer than that. The smaller the body, the quicker the microlensing is. So you have to have better and better surveys to capture the what they call the cadence. How often do they take a data, an op, a photometric data point? And right now they're at a cadence where they can find an Earth, probably, but not a moon. But we will find these, I think, and they will be very interesting to go to. And particularly the ones that are, say, super Earth type, because if you're big enough, you could either have subsurface oceans, or oceans with ice crust on them. So you're out there in vacuum, it's cold, you got a lot of ice on the surface, but underneath you have a an ocean that survives by radioactive heating, or you could have like a, a super Jupiter with an, I mean, a Jupiter with a super earth around, around it. It's in a sort of like uh, Europa is where it's heated tidally. So it's, it's warmed up by that. Or if you actually have, I think it's about three or five, three to five earth masses, the Stevenson planet idea, you could actually have a hydrogen atmosphere that keeps the infrared from heating enough, radioactive heating. If you had an Earth-like planet with this atmosphere, you could actually have water on the surface. It could actually be temperate. You could actually imagine a planet. It reminds me of the Ursula K. Le Guin story, the tombs of Atlan, Atlan or something like that, where you have things that have always been dark and never seen the light. And the heroine is walking around in this always dark environment. So you could literally have oceans with breakers and stuff where it's always been dark. And and yes, there has been considerable work done on how rogue planets could, in fact, still be carrying life forms, especially if they've got like Jovian style moons around them or Saturn like sure. moons around them. Yeah, because those moons would still be warm in their interior because they still are orbiting their, their giant. It, it, it's really interesting how looking for exolife has really kind of exploded lately. I... I'm old enough that I actually worked on the Viking Mars mission, which was a, primarily a mission to find life. It did a lot of other things, including the part I worked on, but that was its core, was finding life. And when that didn't work, and whether or not it didn't work is actually debatable, but the consensus was it didn't work. When that didn't work, that whole first generation of astrobiology just was decimated. I mean... All the people I knew lost their job, had to do something else. It was as bad as Apollo, the closure of Apollo. And for a long time, looking for life was like radioactive at NASA. I mean, we've never repeated the Viking mission experiments. We've never done them better. Levin, who did the label release experiment, he always thought, we should redo this. I know how to do a lot better and proposed that a number of times. I don't know how many times and it just got nowhere. It was radioactive at NASA. It's like, we're not going to touch this. And But now I think it's not. And it was actually kind of refreshing because I go to Mars meetings occasionally and at Mars meetings for a long time, it's like, you just could not talk about Mars life. It was just like, no. Even talking about Mars fossils was kind of like, maybe, but probably not. And then I started going to ocean world meetings, which are like Europa and Celebus and so on. And there, it's sort of like, how are we going to find life on these bodies? What are we going to do? It was just so refreshing. You know, I had not heard that conversation with Mars for decades till now. 
this was some years ago, five years, seven years ago, something like that. But for ocean worlds, yeah, that's and I think that's great. I think we need to do that. Because one thing we need to do is find out, well, if there is life on an ocean world, is it like us? Does it have DNA, RNA? Does it does it have the same genetic code? Is it different genetic code? The same set of amino acids, different, you know, there are these fundamental questions that we just don't know. So, I mean, I feel like if there's life on a nomadic planet that's out there half a light year away, we should go and explore it. Now, it's again, it's probably not going to be beachfront property. And eh, I mean, a question I would have is, what about technological civilization and something like that? If your technological civilization starts traveling around the galaxy with um, generation ships, say, big habitats where people live their whole lives going from one star system to another, would you necessarily ignore nomadic planets that happen to be closer that you could, I mean, if there was a nomadic planet with oceans and so on that you could get to in 50 years, would you ignore that for a star system that took you 500 years to get to? I have a feeling the answer to that is no. So I don't think a technological civilization would arise on a nomadic planet, but I think you might have stuff there. And so I think, you know, again, it's an extraordinary claim that would require extraordinary evidence, but there's no reason you can't consider it. Well, yeah, in fact, I'd say half the charm of rendezvousing with an interstellar object or getting to study them up close is that we can learn about what's going on in other star systems without actually having to go there. Yes. And yeah. A fraction of the time and the cost, and it's a good way to maybe even figure out if there could be life in that particular system. and. And there's another there's another sort of planetary thing that, that we are very familiar with, at least one planetary system, our own, which developed from a main sequence star through what you might call normal planetary formation. There are other ways to form planetary bodies or, or asteroids or whatever that we won't know anything about because they're, like, for example, Supernova remnants sure do look to me like they might form bodies because they have all these filaments in them that look like they might be collapsing. Planetary nebula, which are the end state of stars when they throw out a lot of their gas. That gas has a lot of metals in it, astronomical metals, you know, carbon, oxygen, whatnot. And again, there are these things called cometary knots. It sure does look to me like things are collapsing there. If you had what I call post-main sequence planets or asteroids, or alternative to a main sequence, like, say, a pulsar planet. Could pulsar planets form in situ by having an accretion disk that forms and then turns into, I don't know. But I have a feeling all of those things are possible at some level and will be then, some of them will be put out nomadically into the galaxy. And right now, we don't have any direct evidence for any of that kind of stuff. And as you know, even with exoplanets, it's like we got all these exoplanets, you know, hot Jupiters and stuff. So like, who ordered that? Solar system's not like that way. Well, actually, I believe that it's fair to say that none of the exoplanetary systems we found are really a good match to the solar system. So I hesitate to say we really understand what's going on out there in terms of like planetary formation, body formation, body lifetime, so on and so forth, very well. We have models, we have theories, sure, and that's fine. But I have no doubt that when we start exploring these things, we'll be surprised. Well, so if I may ask you to sort of opine here, assuming that missions to Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri, that these happen within 
our lifetime as as hoped as anticipated and we do get a chance to look at the exoplanets next door in particular proxima b what would you hope or anticipate we might find there just within a modest expectation well i'm also very interested in the candidate one that was discovered about four years ago possibly discovered it has not been confirmed yet but that's around alpha centauri a which is the larger of the two alpha centauri's the binary that's alpha centauri itself yeah and in fact we're working on a paper where we talk about going to both proxima b and candidate one assuming it's confirmed i mean obviously if it doesn't exist then we have to reconsider things but now candidate one would be a super neptune but it might have moons and it's in the habitable zone of alpha centauri a and then you have proxima b which is in the habitable zone of proxima centauri which is an m dwarf which is a flare star which has very bright flares to me it's like comparing those two things comparative exobiology would be very powerful there like here you have two cases you can look at that are rather different but they actually kind of span the the galactic space you might say of different kinds of planets does one have life do both have lives i mean they're actually not that far away do they have the same life as panspermia possible there's some fundamental questions you can begin to ask that i don't know how else you would answer it frankly and so i, I think that's very very exciting proxima gets to within i think it's 8000 au uh, alpha centauri ab so if you were a technological civilization on either of those systems going to the other one would seem like almost a slam dunk it would be much easier than us getting to alpha centauri mm -hmm. so if there is a technological civilization on one i would expect it to be on both now that's interesting because then you could say for example one of the troubles people have is the false positive problem right you say i'm going to look for oxygen as a biosignature i'm going to look for nighttime lights as a biosignature i'm going to look for this i'm going to look for that and you go and you find it but it's like somebody says well you know there's this chemical reaction or there's this thing here that that could explain this a biologically but if you find two systems and they have the same sort of signatures and they're yet they're rather different systems there i think you have a really good case of saying yeah this is a real strong indicator of life because i would expect the chemistry on these two planets to be rather different so if you saw similar biological signatures you would think that's probably biology and, and people argue about this for years i mean for decades i'm sure i don't i don't doubt that at all that none of this will be accepted just i've talked to astrobiologists none of them think that just by finding some chemical at some concentration you're going to be able to say yeah there's life mm -hmm. they don't think that way none of them none of the ones i've talked to in fact they're not even that impressed it's like I remember saying, well, what if we could land on Europa and find DNA? You know, so we've got a DNA meter, DNA DNAometer, and we land on Europa and we dig down in the ice a little bit and we find some DNA. Wouldn't you be convinced then that there's life there? It's like, well, no. For one thing, how do I know that's not common contamination from Earth? But for another thing, you know, well, maybe there's other ways to make DNA. It had to be around before life started, almost certainly. So they want more they want like the web of life what's the whole what's the system like what does it eat and so on and I think we'll eventually send people there assuming these planets are at all habitable I think there'll be people there I think 
Not in our lifetimes, maybe not even this millennium, but I think it will happen. So we're just starting that right now. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. There's one thing that I keep coming back to. It's the idea of how this stuff is either starting or coming together in recent years and just how we're, we really do seem like we're on the cusp of something extraordinary. We can do this if we want to, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like one eye. We could go there if we want to. Now, you can argue about whether we want to spend the money or not, but the simple fact is anybody who says, oh, you can't go there, they're wrong. We could go to one eye if we wanted to. I am convinced we can go to Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri if we want to. And not by sending a generation ship. Obviously, you can send generation ships. You know, you can imagine building this huge ship and it takes 10,000 years to get there. No, we could send something that gets us data back within a person's lifetime if we want to. So it's a question really, well, what do we want to do as a species? Yeah. And I think, yes, I think in some ways the signs are positive right now that people are interested in pushing out. And I hope it stays that way. Uh, Well, me too. Well, Marshall, I want to thank you for coming on and best of luck with your NIAC grant and the development of the swarming Proxima Centauri concept. I also hope to hear more about Project Lear in the coming years. And for my listeners, Keep your ear to the ground for these missions because they promise to be very exciting, very groundbreaking, if and when they are realized. In the meantime, thank you for tuning in. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.